Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Joshua 23 tonight. You can turn or click there, and we will be picking up. Joshua is going to give a farewell address. It starts in verse 1 with, Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old and advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in age. Uh He's been old and advanced in age before. A few chapters ago, he was old and advanced in age. And the Lord's given him a lot more years to be doing the work. Um, and he has, um, but he shows up here at the end. Joshua 23, 24 is at the end of, it took him about seven years to conquer Israel or for God to conquer Israel. And they got to watch. And then another 13 years of splitting up, moving into these tribal areas and coming in with the good news that God's got a way of life for people to live. And the kingdom of God gets established the way God wants it to get established. They're establishing the worship of Yahweh in each city in the region without uh, contention, competition, or military combat. So God's won the military battles, but now comes the battle of the heart. And that has to be what happens in this area. So um, some of those people that were Canaanites and in the land have converted to it to, to Hebrew, Judaistic, Yahweh worship. Rahab at the beginning, we get the, the Gibeonites in the, in, the, in the end of that process. So you've got whole groups of people that have said, we'll follow Yahweh and we'll do that. So it's not a, it's not a racial thing. There are people that want to be part of the kingdom of God can jump in. And there's plans in Deuteronomy for the strangers that are in the land can be part of Yahweh worship too. It's open to everybody that wants to do it, but those that want to fight Yahweh those battles have to get fought. And Joshua's seen over that now for 20 years, and he's watched all that happen. So at the end of his book, there's going to be two farewell addresses. The first one here has the elders in verse 2, the heads, the judges, the officers, kind of that leadership core, which later on in Jewish tradition gets a name, and the name is the Sanhedrin. So that Sanhedrin are the leaders of the tribes, the elders, the judges, and the officers from every city. And those Sanhedrin is the same group of people that are uh, the people Jesus deals with when he comes around. In the last five years, the Sanhedrin has been reestablished in Israel. So there's a group of people now that, that are being called the Sanhedrin, and they have been reinstituted and rebrought together. But the idea is that the whole nation looks to this group of people for wisdom and direction. And that assumed wisdom and direction is, that, is looking to God for how to do things. So the spiritual heads represent the civic leadership, the judges, the judicial leadership, and the elders, the spiritual leadership. So they've got all those people here. So now Joshua's really old, even older than he was last time he says he was old. He's called the people to him. And uh, back in uh, Joshua 13.1 is when that kind of, when he said he was old before. At this point, uh, it's believed Joshua's 110 years old. So by most accounts, because this is post-flood, he's been sustained even supernaturally by God to be with Israel for this amount of time. 
or he's just a really healthy guy. People live to be that old. But they don't always live to be that old when they're in combat and things like that. So he's been around. He's called for them, so it's likely at his home. But in chapter 24, it's likely in front of the tabernacle, and we'll see that next week when we get to there. So here's a thought. When somebody's been around for 110 years fighting the battles and doing God's work, not just hearing it, but doing it, you listen to people like this. And what we're going to hear tonight is his advice to the people that are going to go on after he's gone and what he says to them about how to live life. So it's a powerful chapter, and I want to really kind of get into it. But we look at the great works that get done by old people, and it's fairly... Sometimes when you see people in the ripe years of their life, they do their best work ever. And I would suggest that in the book of Joshua, what we're going to see in the next two chapters is Joshua's best work ever. And he's had years to think about it. He's had years under Moses, 40 of them, serving under one of the greatest leaders in Jewish history. And now he's had another season where he's been leading Israel. He's had 20 years where he's just seen God doing work all across the country. And now he's got things to say to God's people. So when somebody like him talks and you see this kind of great work, you know, we see this throughout history. You got Moses who was 80 plus years old before he started his ministry. Never too late to start. If you want to be used by God, you can be used by God. It's time to go. Uh, you got Monet, Cezanne, Frank Lloyd Wright, Martha Stewart did most of her work in her older years. And I am thankful for that. Julia Childs <laughs> is another person who did some of her greatest work in her elder years. And I'm thankful for her. But Joshua's still teaching. He's still encouraging. And he's still exhorting. He's 110 years old. Like this is more than just grandpa calling you in at, you know, at the holiday season. This is a man who has led a nation and, and done it successfully. Uh, I was looking at Christian leaders that kind of went a long time and just that faithfulness idea before we get into Joshua's teaching. And I found Jonathan Wesley, right? John Wesley um, is known to have put in uh, a quarter of a million miles on the back of a horse, just going from town to town to town, like Pastor Daniel, just going town to town to town and talking about the word of God. Wrote over 400 books, 40,000 sermons, 10 languages he learned over his life so that he could translate. This is a guy who woke up in the morning, lived for the Lord, and went to bed at night, six days a week, right? And on the seventh day, he probably rested. But he's a person who just gave his whole life over to the Lord. And we always like that idea. At least that's the approach we're taking. Um, <laughs> the last time in first one, it says, uh, gave rest to their enemies from all their enemies round about. Do you see that? There might be a slightly different transition. That's what I would call another Easter egg. It's in there, and you would read right over it if you're just kind of doing your Bible reading for the day. But when you get to dig in a little bit, it's God has. It's an Easter egg that says God has kept his word perfectly. If you have to go back to Deuteronomy 12.10, it's the last time that phrase got used in the Bible. And it's when they were promising the holy land or this land to the Israelites, that they would be given that land roundabout. So that unique phrasing in the Hebrew gets reintroduced at this point in the life, and Joshua starts to make the point through his language that God's kept his promises. And we kind of got that last week, too. The next verse back in Deuteronomy is the promise of a place for God to abide. That's the only part of the promise that hasn't been kept yet. We don't know where Jerusalem is going to be at this point in the biblical narrative. So the first verse is they'd be given the land and that that's been kept. So when Joshua brings that language up and uses the phrase roundabout there, it would bring to mind, anybody who'd studied Deuteronomy, it would bring that to mind. 
and go, oh, God's kept his promises. He's called Israel in this representative system of people. Verse 3 says, uh, you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of, or that should be translated for you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. Joshua starts by elevating God over himself. It would be easy at 110 years old to start regaling yourself. Look at all the things I've done. Look at how great I am. But he doesn't do that. He, the first thing, the ma first major point he makes is that the Lord your God has done everything. He's not self-glorifying. Every word of God proves to be true. He's a shield to all who come to him for protection. Proverbs 35. He reminds them of their memories. He reminds them of their God. Verse 4. See, I've divided to you by, these lo by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan. With all the nations that I've cut off as far as the great sea westward, and the Lord your God will expel them before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. So Joshua fought major battles, but he's leaving more battles, more minor battles to fight for each of the nations. And it's their job to do it and claim it. It doesn't say here that they should slaughter people. This is one of the critiques that gets leveled against the Bible, that they were a, a, a horrible, mean people that killed and slaughtered. It actually doesn't say slaughter at all. It says to expel them. And in the English, it means the same thing as it does in the Hebrew. It means get them out of those cities and those lands. They can be shepherds. They just need to do it in Moab or Amor, or they need to go somewhere else to do it. And for nomadic people, that means move your sheep and get out of here. This is going to be Yahweh territory. God has no issue, of course, with warfare when they're attacked, and we've seen that. But the command of them is to expel them and to drive them out of the land. Uh, these nations there is Goyim, which means Gentiles. Uh, it means other nations. Uh, they shouldn't be there. If you're going to have a kingdom of God, it should be a kingdom of God, not something else. It shouldn't combine or mix with something else. And if you look at Joshua as a typology for the church, the church is the place where we as believers can study the word, fellowship, pray, and enjoy the fruits of the spirit. And the point isn't to just stay in the church. We do church, but we go out and live our lives and do what we read, right? So it, it has to carry forward. But the idea that there's one place in our life that we just keep sacred is okay. And in this point or this typology, the idea is Israel should be sacred. It should be set aside for God and for a kingdom of God on earth. Um, Joshua's assuming that God will do, do his part in verse 5. God will expel. It's not he might expel, he could expel. If you stay faithful, God will do it. In verse 5, he assumes that you shall possess, um, but you have to do your part to do that. So if you do your part, God will give you everything he's promised to give you, and he's already given you everything he's promised. So the relationship isn't complex, it, but humans screw it up all the time. In fact, this is what we do. Um, we don't control God or God's will. We control ourselves and our free will, but we think sometimes that we control God and his will. We're servants that respond to God. We're not servants that tell God what to do. We move where God tells us to move. When the cloud moves, we move. When the pillar of fire moves, stops, we stop. So we respond to God, but we don't tell God what to do. God will do things, and we can come in and be a part of that. That's an amazing kind of simple theology that if you just keep it simple, you don't have to muck that up too much. We re are responsive to God's will and his spirit on this earth. We wait on the Lord, and we move when he says. 
So there's going to be a series of exhortations in this final speech from Joshua. He's going to say, here's how you live life, and here's what you do. So this is a great one for new believers that are like, how do I know what the voice of God is? Okay, we're going to, we're going to go through how to live life tonight. So this is God's written word that he has inspired and given to you, and I hope it speaks into your heart like it has into mine. Stuff got an earful this week. <laughs> Verse 6, Therefore be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you. Be very courageous. Joshua needs little Joshua's, right? This is the whole theme of the book, be strong and courageous. But the point isn't just to look at Joshua and say, oh, isn't Joshua great? Joshua's old and he's going to go away. Jesus left us to do Jesus's work. He needs little Jesus's right? And so this idea of be very courageous, Joshua is telling them exactly what he was told by Moses and by God. And he's just passing along what he's been taught. Some people think it's really hard to share our faith with other people. But if you have faith, you know enough to be able to ask other people to have faith too. So whatever brought you into the kingdom is something you should at least be able to share with other people because you've been convinced and you're following. So if you want to stand out, first exhortation, be very courageous. So if you want to be a rebel, follow the word of God, because most humans don't. So just sticking to the word and doing it makes you stand out. It doesn't take a lot of courage to come to Bible study on Sunday night. It takes devotion and commitment, but it doesn't take courage to be here. Like we're amongst friends right now. It takes courage when we live our faith and talk about our joy in Jesus with other people when we leave here, right? The courage isn't necessarily, this is where we build up our courage and we go out and do it. But when we stick to the word of God, that's Joshua's imploring, imploring. This is his exhortation to his people. Stick to the word of God, every single bit of it. He says to keep it, which is to guard that word we've seen a few times. It is to guard it like military soldiers guard their post. Keep the word of God and stick to it and guard it and stand by it. When somebody picks on your Bible, pick back. Like this is your Bible and this is what you've based your life on. If somebody says there's problems in the Bible, you better find out what those problems are because you're staking your life on it, right? And, we, and then he says to do it. This is what we were, Daniel was just saying before the Bible study tonight. I'm thinking, fancy we're going to be on that. Keep it and do it. We've seen that theme throughout the Old Testament. The point isn't just to know it. The point is to live it and to do it and get out and do it. So knowing and reading is assumed by Joshua because Joshua read the book to him himself. So like Paul said, I taught you the completeness of the word of God. And he was able to say that with confidence because he had taught the people the entire word of God. Joshua does the same thing. Keep the word of God and do it. And he knows that they've heard it because he told them himself. I think sometimes this idea of this, I, we love the word of God, we cherish it, we guard it, we keep it, we do it. Read the word, do the word. It's like the peanut butter and jelly of the Old Testament, right? It just keeps coming up again and again and again. So Lord, what should I do? Well, when in doubt, read the word of God. When the word of God says to share your faith with other people or to share and pursue holiness, then go do that thing which the Bible says to do. Um, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. 2 Timothy 4.2 Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. That's the command. 
and it's in the New Testament, just like the Old Testament. It says, all that is written. We tend to skip what we like. Remember the passages in Deuteronomy it was very uncomfortable for us to talk about? The tendency is to skip that stuff that we don't like in the Bible, and we just kind of gloss over it. But no, we got into it. We were studying, you know, all sorts of things, animal relationships and uh, how to not kill people and what to do with our fences and how to cover up holes in our yard. Keep all that is written and do those things. I've become a servant. Uh, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness, Colossians 1.25. It said, lest you. When, when Joshua says lest you, it, it assumes that there's a consequence if you don't do these things. You can be in the word of God, keep it and do it, and you're going to get the blessings of God. And God will anoint your spirit with hope and joy and the fruits of the spirit. Or you can dabble around with your Christianity. You can read it and not do it. And that's an option. But he says, lest you, uh, if you do that sort of thing, you're going to stray. And you're going to stray because humans stray all the time. It's easy to stray. God's way is easy for us to blind ourselves to and not do it. It says you can stray either to the right hand or the left. The right hand typifies power in the ancient world. It is the hand that you do things with, and it, and it typifies order and authority. The left hand is something that you would play with or add for emotion when you talk. So it's the more playful side. And in the ancient world, that's kind of the typification of those things. I don't think Satan cares if you fail to the right or the left. You can fail to the side of power and authority and be a legalist, and be so uptight about your faith and legalistic about everything you do that you push everyone away from you. Because nobody wants that faith. You're boring and you're mean, right? Or you can err to the left where your f faith is fluffy and it's filled with nothing of meat or substance. And it doesn't really mean that you do anything different from the world because you just go doing everything the world does. And you don't stand out and you're not different at all. I don't think Satan cares which one you take. He just wants you to go to the right or the left and to stray. But we don't do that. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort anyone uh, of the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. 2 Corinthians 4.2 Beware of teachers that bounce all over the Bible to teach. Just teach what's there. And tell us what it says and help us to understand each chapter and what it says there. Usually when you get teachers that aren't, are underhanded or shameful, as 2 Corinthians says, what they do is they try to get the Bible to say something that they want it to say. There's a popular philosophy going around the world, and they say, look how the Bible supports that philosophy. And you can bounce around and make things say what you want it to say. And there are pastors out there, and I won't mention names, but you know who they are. And you've found them, and they brag about how they can get the Bible to say whatever they want it to say. And that's not teaching it straightforward. That's not telling the truth before God and being honest with what we teach. So Joshua says, don't stray to the left or the right, lest you stray to the left or the right. And the context for this is when you go among the other people, uh, there's a danger in toying with the world. Uh, not being established in the world sets you up to follow whatever cultural fads pop up. And the only defense against that really is, well, the Bible says I shouldn't do that. So why am I doing that? Why am I watching this when it's proposing a worldview that's the antithesis of what my Bible says that it should be? Why am I even putting this in my head, right? So I looked up the word amusement. I think one of the great temptations of us is that if our primary thing from Joshua is stick to the word of God, we tend to amuse ourselves and we find amusement. The root word amusement to muse is to think or reason, which God calls us to use our brains. 
Think and reason this through. Come, let us reason together. Amusement, when you put the A in front of it in the Latin, it means the opposite of that. It's the opposite of thinking. When we amuse ourselves, we're not thinking. It's anything but thinking. Anything but putting our brain to something or to straight or to left, really. Amusement. And I think that's one of the great dangers is we almost treat amusement as a personal right. I need amusement time. Do you? Is that what God's called you to? And I'm just putting it out there because I'm preaching myself right now, right? Mm -hmm. So before you call me a hypocrite, you can, yes, I do amuse myself now and then. <laughs> but I'm convicted about it because I read what Joshua's saying here, and he doesn't say set aside time to amuse yourself. He just doesn't say it. It's not necessarily the, what we're called to do. So the idea of courage is when God's word is challenged, we are bold and we stand for it. Same thing as in the New Testament. There's no middle ground on this. There's no compromise on this. It's an all-in philosophy. So why does he say courage is the thing? Why does the 110-year-old guy inspire courage? Because it's a temptation to just let things go. Why get into it with people, right? And I struggle with this too. So the temptation is to not be courageous, which is why he says be courageous. This is like Paul when he's opposed by the Jews. <laughs> and when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said to them, your blood is on your own heads. Paul was not... He was bold and courageous with his faith. I'm clean from henceforth. I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, the one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Acts 18. Great story. The synagogue yells at him and kicks him out. He starts a Bible study in the house joined to the synagogue, right? Because the houses were kind of tied together with each other. So hard next to means he literally started a Bible study next door. That's bold and courageous. You want to get into it with the, with the synagogue? And, and he starts the Bible study right next door to the synagogue. I just love what he's doing there. It's bold and it's courageous. So Joshua tells like it is. Stick to God's word. Set the example. Exhortation number two. Uh, don't talk about other people's objects of worship. Uh, the end of verse seven. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them. But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you've done this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one's been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. Okay, first of all, people put that on T-shirts. There's a couple T-shirt lines in here, but they're cliche T-shirts, Katie. I don't know if you want to make these. One man against a thousand. Yeah, it takes some courage when it looks like you're outnumbered, but you plus God equals the majority. And it just works that way. Ask people in the room that are out doing ministry. One progression here is don't mention, don't cause anyone, don't serve, don't bow. You see the verbs? There's a progression. Joshua's a smart guy at this point in his life. He's carefully wording these things because he's of old age and he's ready to go. Nobody starts by bowing down to false gods. That's not how that works. We start by talking about things with people. And then we get involved with things. And then we join fantasy leagues over those things. And then we find that we're having to do the research to try to win the fantasy league over those things. And the next thing you know, we're actually spending money to get resources to help us build our fantasy teams. And then the next thing you know, you're, you're skipping church in order to do your box scores, right? Amusement can be something that you serve too. 
And Joshua's bringing up this progression here because there's no such thing as an idle conversation. And one thing that you get into when you start talking about the world is that you start to become like the world, right? So when we get good at conversations about other people's topics, we have to think about what those topics are doing in their lives. Is there anything particularly sinful about a fantasy league? No. Are there people that get lost in that and prefer to do that over God? Yes. So what does then that, who's that in competition with? And even though you have liberty and have freedom in Christ, you can still be helping other people stumble by talking with them about their gods in order to get to know them or connect with them. But when you do that, you are giving cause to that conversation to, get, to give it life. So it says, don't make mention of the name of other gods. Don't even talk about them. Don't use your mouth to give weight to that. So there's an internal, not an external element here. When you mention things or cause other people to mention things, um, then it gets to external things when it says serve them, uh, and, and the alternative is to hold fast to the Lord. So, you know, they have what's coming up. We're starting to get the ads for, like, the fall TV season, the must-see TV, and I think spiritually it's the fall season for a reason. They're trying to tell you what you need to watch and put into your head. But who cares? As a child of God, wouldn't you rather be hanging out and doing fellowship with other believers? Wouldn't you rather be trying to convince other people to find the love of Jesus Christ? What should be filling up your time? So I remember working at the nursing home, and we'd have people that you know would get all excited because in the nursing home, I would be like, you guys are in the best place in the world. They bring you your food, and you can just study the Bible all day and then hang out with other people and talk about it. So these nursing home people actually started doing that. And they just thought it was great because they'd come back and in like a month they had read way more than I had. So they were correcting me after every teaching <laughs> and they had read whole books. And, and it was just amazing because they're finding ways to get close to God even when they couldn't move their bodies, right? There's an internal aspect and an external aspect. The marketing people are doing everything they can do to get your attention and they're really good at it. They're scientific at it. In fact, when I was studying games theory at Madison for my doctorate, they would get things down to the millisecond. They were tracking attention span when games were being played down to the second because they wanted to know exactly when to put a sparkly thing in there to get your attention back. Like that's how intentional they are about your intention. How intentional are you about where your attention goes? Think of what Joshua is saying here. Don't make mention of their gods or cause anyone else to swear about them. Are you intentional about your language and what you talk about and, and what people worship, right? It says you shall not s serve them. This assumes the possibility that even though they're the children of God creating the first nation of God on the planet, that it's possible for them to go off and serve, serve other gods. They have free will. This, this throws the theologians into conniptions. Can you lose your salvation? Can serving these other gods cause you to fall away? And at this point, I would say, if you're even asking that question, you should just serve Jesus and then you don't have to worry about it, right? Choose this day who you serve. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. The temptation is to not get into it with people. The temptation is also to get into it with people about things they want to talk about, right? And, and Joshua is saying both of those can be a danger. Um, how do we reach the world? By sharing in their interests. You don't. All you do is they're reaching you with their interests. But if you're excited about your following of the Lord and what the Lord's doing in your life, 
they should want to come into your conversation about that. And that's a it's a it's a it's a really tricky piece that's there. Um, <laughs> they have focus and attention. Uh, Steph is in the book of Acts, and in Acts six two, there's a really interesting passage where they're they're God's adding to their numbers. There's tons of people. They're doing food. They're doing all this. And in Acts six two, it says, "So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They gathered everybody together, and they said, look." We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. That's a tough passage for people. Is a food program a good thing? Absolutely. Do people need to eat? Yes. Some people in the body are called to teach the word, and they're deciding where to spend their time and where to spend their energy because they're spending their time and their energy. And I just pray for a church that's like that, where there's so much to do. We have to decide who's going to do what and how we're going to do it because there's lots to do. But I love the intention they put as to where they're going to go. And the food program is second to them to the teaching of the word. Learn the word, hold fast to it, and then go do it. But if they can't do the teaching of the word, then the food program is just a food program. And it doesn't lead anybody anywhere. So the first priority is where they put things. So the idea of where we put our interest is a big deal. And Joshua points that out as an exhortation from this old guy that's been there and done that. Where do you put your attention? Where do you put your mind? Interest is from the Latin word interest, something that you see is important or worth your concern. If it's important and it's worth your concern, you have, in some ways, you're making mention of it. You're talking about it, right? If what's on the news is of interest to you, it is getting a piece of your worship because you're giving it importance when you get interest in it. So why would you be worried about anything other than what the Lord has for your life? And that's a, a really... Strong admonishment from Joshua. Here's the solution. The solution is hold fast or cleave to. The contrast is stark and clear. You can dabble with that stuff or you can hold fast to God and that drives the bad stuff away. As you have done implies that they've been doing it the right way. So Joshua's got them on the right path. It says the Lord has driven. The God's already shown you that when you do it the right way, he'll drive out these other things from your life. No one has been able to stand. It has worked for them in the past. They do it. God does this thing. They stand strong. And it's really simple. But it's amazing how fast the stuff of the world comes in when they do it. The Jewish society was homes and synagogues. That's where the interest was. Build the synagogue, build your home. That changes over time because the Canaanites had tombs, barracks, where they build. They would build these massive baths the Romans built schools, theaters, arenas, baths, palaces, markets, temples. Secularism hasn't changed. You look around the Twin Cities, we build a lot of things. We put our interest in a lot of things that aren't of God. And it's just what people do, but it's not the model God set up for Israel. And it's not the model Jesus sets up for the disciples. He says, I'm going to send you out in twos. Don't take anything with you. Just trust that the Lord will provide. He provides for the animals. He'll provide for you. Just trust the Lord that he'll do his thing. So he sends people out really easily. So the world hasn't changed, is my point, from the Canaanites to the Romans to the Greeks to the Americans. It just hasn't changed. There's so many things to put your attention on, and it's not always big religious decisions. It's where you spend your life, which is an issue of the heart. So in the America, we have theaters, which take us into fantasy worlds. We don't have to even think about reality if we don't want to. We have stadiums where we can worship other humans doing amazing things. We have bars and clubs where we can worship lust. We have palaces and 
government buildings where we can worship power. We have shopping malls where we can worship greed and restaurants where there's, we can worship food. I know. And we have temples. We have other religions in our country, too, that actually take you to false gods. But the false gods for Joshua start by even mentioning all that other stuff. It's just not worth mentioning. Don't even talk about it. Christians at our core are just like these Jews. Homes, churches. And that's where we put our time and our attention and our interest, where God tells us to put our time, our attention, our interest. That's a, a huge discussion for afterwards when it comes to like civic engagement and all that. But what Joshua's point here is, just stick to those things God's told you to do. And he's told them to do family and to do synagogue or to do church. Nothing stands against you when you do that. So put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, Ephesians 6.11. One man of you shall chase a thousand. God loves these odds. When we're totally outnumbered by the world, God gets all the glory and all the credit. He loves it when simple people do amazing things. And he blesses those people because he loves their heart that just want to serve him with what they have. Exhortation number three. This is getting pretty rough, right? I hope it is. It was for me this week. So um, first, stick to the word. Two, don't even talk about their stuff. Number three, we're going to say don't snuggle up to dead things. Verse 11. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves. Do we take heed to everybody else? Do we take heed to ourselves? Start with you before you start telling other people what to do. Jesus said, don't worry about the log in somebody else's eye or the twig in somebody else's eye when you have a log in your own. Joshua says the same thing. Take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. It all starts with your heart. I love verse 11. Or else, if you indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go into them and they into you, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So I love when it says take heed to yourselves and you got to yourself in the Hebrew is the word soul. Take heed to your soul and watch where your heart is. And God gives you huge indicators like peace and joy and mirth and well-being. And you know when your soul's messed up and when it's tainted. And you know when your soul is at peace. So God gives you this wonderful thermometer of where your soul is at called your conscience and the Holy Spirit. Is, and when your thermometer is good and people give you a convicting message from the Bible, you're like, thank you, Lord, for that reminder. But when your soul's bad, you start to get mad at the person teaching the Bible, <laughs> right? That's when you really know something's off with your soul. Take heed to your soul. Know how, be tuned into it and know where it's at. Abide with God when you go forward and don't dabble in pointless things. So love the Lord your God is contracted. Uh, in this, uh, as we get to the end of this book, he's going to contract the people of Israel much, much like a marriage. You really make a marriage vow to God and you make a marriage vow to another person. And those are the two vows God calls us to. So who do we covenant with? Take heed to yourselves, make covenant with God. And that's kind of the calling here. It's the central tenet of the law. True love is done and it's self-sacrificial. And when we sacrifice ourselves for God, we're showing our love for God. Any direction not towards God 
is backwards. If we covenant with God, our lives should each day be growing closer to God. And then we trust everything else to him. But if we're not doing that, we're not going the right way. Think of it this way. If you marry someone and you only spend one day a month with them, or one day a week, how good is that marriage going to be? And how long will it last? So don't, don't miss. <laughs> Some people know the answer to that question. <laughs> the appeal here is that what can become stagnation then becomes pain and death in these situations. Know for certain in verse 13. See that? No, don't have any doubt about this. When you're going in a different direction than God, don't expect him to put his hand on your life. Don't. It doesn't work that way. So when he says that, it's extremely strong language. It's emphatic language. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive them out. Why does God do this? Is this God hating you? No, it's quite the opposite. And for a parent, you know this. When your kids are going the wrong direction, you don't give them positive reinforcement. It's a bad idea. When you laugh at them when they're little, when they're doing really dumb things, then it's not so funny when they're 16 and they're doing dumb things, right? It, it is something that goes forward. So you try to be consistent with that, and the Lord God is perfectly consistent. God loves perfectly and keeps promises per perfectly, and when we walk away from God, we're walking away from that protection, the comfort, and the blessing of God. So a good God would discipline that for his children. And if he's not disciplining you, that's even more dangerous. But when he's disciplining you, it means he's loving you. But they shall be snares and traps to you. The they there is the other religions, those concerns of the world, those false worship areas, those other interests. They are snares and traps. I joke about fantasy football, but that was one of my big moments in life when I decided I'm serving this more than I'm serving my God. Okay, that's got to go. And I know that's not exactly a huge testimony, but it's one of those things where you're just like, What's, what else in my life has to go so that I can make more room for God than for that? So where everything else is a little less than what I do for God, right? So those snares and traps are things because those things are easy and they don't require a lot of courage that Joshua's talking about. They're the way of the lazy and the way of those that don't intend to do that. Traps do a few things. When you call something a trap, it means it dominates your movement. It means you can't go forward and you can't go back because you're in a trap. So they look small and they look innocent and they're usually hidden before you hit them. Once you hit them, you're, you can't move and you can't go anywhere and you wonder how you got there. They stagnate you and you get no spiritual growth. You decide to follow God, then you abide with God and you move and you move forward in your faith. It says scourges on your sides and thorns in your sides. Notice how those little innocent traps actually become painful and tormenting. And sin does that when it dominates your life. If you lose God's love, or better said, if you choose to backslide in God's love, it actually becomes painful. It would be better to have never been a believer at all than to be a believer and then not walk in your faith, right? Because both the enemy wants to get you and the Lord wants to discipline you. So this is a struggle, and that won't be fun. But backsliding is so common in the church. In fact, we even assume that that's going to happen in most Christians' lives. We've seen typologies and models of the Israelites backsliding. And God redeems them and recovers them because that's part of our growth too, is that we learn to walk with the Lord. It's almost like one of those economic charts. We go back a little, we 
fix that. We go back a little, we fix that. But the end day is that church should be going the right direction. And God loves to work with people that are doing that. So with thorns in our eyes and a scourge in our side, we have a crystal clear image or obscure prophecy of what's actually going to happen. Someone's going to get whipped and someone's going to have thorns in their eyes because of the sin of the world. And when we see that image here and you wonder where's Jesus in the Old Testament, like that consequence gets paid. Joshua's right on target. And that's exactly how it gets paid. And I don't even think the Romans knew what they were doing when they put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. But they were actually fulfilling this kind of piece here where Joshua's speaking on behalf of the Lord. Notice the problem with traps is not only do they stop your movement, but with thorns in your eyes, they stop your sight too. You can't see very well when you're in the middle of your sin. And, you, and, it, and it sometimes takes somebody like Joshua or a brother or sister in the faith to point out to you, you got to get your life on track. you got to get to where you're doing things for the Lord and with the Lord. So the end consequence here is it says, if you don't do these things until you perish, that's going to happen in 722 BC. Um, and it happens quite like they said. The Assyrians come in, they strip them naked, they put hooks through their skin and their body, and then they put all the hooks on a chain, and they literally march them off to other nations outside the land. It says that they will perish from this good land. Again, they're disgraced, and they're taken out of the land, and the word perish there means simply to be removed from the land because obviously the Jewish people survived it. They just survived it in other places as they were taken out of the land. It's not an Old Testament concept alone. It's the same God in both Testaments. Matthew 5.13 you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. If you're not living for the kingdom, you're not much good for the kingdom. And this is a huge convicting message. And this is the kind of message that really ticks people off too. How dare you say those things? And it's kind of like, oh, I'm not saying it. I'm just, I'm trying to just read the Bible, but I want to be faithful to what it's saying. If you do it, if you choose to go that route, you will perish from the land. It's a very non-compromised sentence from Joshua. It's an either-or kind of situation. What we want is a heart that desires God and not desiring sin. So if we choose to abandon God, don't expect the Holy Spirit to be doing wonderful things in your life. You're going to come back week after week and not have much to say. Stick to the Word of God, verse 6. Don't talk, talk about God. Don't talk about the world. Verse 7. Stick together. Verse 11. Don't look back. Verse 12. Know for certain that God doesn't bless sinners. In verse 13. Do you see the pattern that Joshua is building up here? This is not a message for the lighthearted. Exhortation 4, though, is a little nicer. So we've hit the tough stuff. If you've gotten through it this far, God still loves you. Verse 14. Behold, even though there's thorns in your eyes in the last couple of verses, he now says, behold, which means to see something visibly. Look at this. So even though it might be hard to see through that, like, look at this. This day I'm going all the way, the way of all the earth. That's a euphemism for I'm going to die, right? So he says, behold, this day I'm going to go the way, going the way of all the earth. Uh, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God has spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. This is the good stuff, right? God's done everything for you. He's gone out of his way for you. 
if you're even hearing this right now, that's not an accident. God's speaking into your life through his word, through the fellowship of the saints. And I didn't pick this chapter tonight. So even if we have guests tonight, God brought you here this week to hear this chapter. And I don't doubt that a bit. It says, I'm going the way of all the earth. Uh, an implication that everybody's going to die. Uh, there's only one that didn't. And that person hasn't shown up yet. But Joshua's going to die. He's actually human. He's at best a typology of Jesus, Yeshua. But he's not Jesus. He's going to go the way of all the earth. Um, that idea that if we search our hearts, and I like this, know in your hearts and in your souls, what are we supposed to know? We're supposed to know that God never fails. So if you want to meditate on God's word, meditate on that. God never fails. And he's, there's no mistakes in what he's doing. All of world history has been part of his plan. Um, and he's known all of history before the conception of the world. So he knows what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And then people get all worried about open theism or neo-Calvinism and all that sort of thing. If you're worried about it, just do what God's called you to do, and then you don't have to worry about it, right? It's, you can go the simple theology, too, and just walk that path. Not one thing has failed. To think that God can fail, even a word, is to not know God. If you think God can mess up or screw up, you simply don't know Joshua's God. And that's what he's exhorting them. That's what he, These are his final words. Know that God never fails. Just know it. And when you take on those big risks or those big temptations, know that he, he, fail, he, he does everything from the greatest of mountains to the smallest of dust bunnies. He never fails in anything that he does. When we know God is perfect, we can rightly admire and adore God for who he is. And just think about that. If we know, if we put that in our heart and our soul and we know God's perfect, we can then worship that. And it's worshiping in truth and in spirit because we're not worshiping something false. We're worshiping, some, worshiping something that's worthy of worship. God never fails. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid nor be scared of them. For the Lord your God is he who does go with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. That's what was told to Joshua when he got started. So when he finishes it and he says, you know me, know that God's never failed. He's repeating what he was told at the beginning. In his life, God has been faithful in everything. So if you want to trust a 110-year-old warrior in the faith, and he says God's never missed a beat, that's something that should give you a lot of courage. And it turns out that everything's true. In the New Testament, Jesus says to pray, so we pray. Leviticus and Jesus say to assemble, so we assemble. And we do it faithfully. And we do those things because we're told to by God. And when we do what we're told, God never fails to do what he says he'll do. And when they had prayed, Acts 4.31, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. We hope that doesn't happen to your house, Paul. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. I just love when the New Testament connects so good to what Joshua's saying here. Be courageous in your faith. Be bold in what you're doing. So we choose to pray. We choose to assemble because God tells us to. And when we study God's word, God then does his part because he promises to. And he does that quite amazingly. And we can then be bold with our faith because we've seen how God works in our lives. Some of you have even said, man, after just so long, I can see the difference God's making in my life. Awesome. Tell people about it. That's the magic equation. When God starts to do a new thing in your heart and you feel that joy of the peace of the spirit, tell people about it. Be bold about it. When we know God's word, we can be bold about it. When we know God, we can be bold about God. But you can't be bold about a God you don't know. 
or one that you haven't met, right? So when we have a need and that need is met, that's something to talk about. In fact, it should be so exciting to talk about that it's actually hard to hold it in. And that's called the overflowing of the Holy Spirit. It's not magical. It's not fancy. It's just God's word. And that overflowing of the Holy Spirit will annoy your non-Christian friends, right? Will you just stop talking about Jesus? And it's like, I can't. There's so much to talk about. It's hard to control. Not one thing has failed. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which they spoke, Acts 6.10. They weren't even able to resist it. When you're in the word of God, falling in love with the word of God, spending your time with other people in the body, you can't even resist telling people about it. You can't hold it back. In fact, it just kind of happens naturally and out of the flow of the spirit. So Joshua sets up a contrast here, right? You can dabble with the world and backslide and God's going to lift his hand from you and it'll be a really painful life, like thorns and things in the eyeballs and all that. Or you can do this. And you have this amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So there's this contrast. Then he gets on to the fifth exhortation. God is faithful to curse, right? Fifth exhortation. So he gets to something good, then he flips it again. It's like he wants them to learn this idea. Verse 15, therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord God has promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he's destroyed you from this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed, that's not a slip. I think Joshua actually had a prophetic vision here. He knew they were going to transgress. So when you transgress, have transgressed, the covenant of the Lord your God, which he's commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he's given you. This is just going to happen. And in fact, it does happen. But in these short verses, he just paraphrased both Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the curses. Walk God's way, there's blessings. Don't walk God's way, there's curses. It's really, he just reminds them of that. If you transgress, God will be glorified by reacting accordingly because you'll see the power of God either way. And that's one of those things that I think for some people is really tough. I don't really struggle with that all that much because I'm a parent. Right? Another thing is you can say, all right, well, you can touch the outlet on the wall. When you touch the outlet on the wall, it will hurt your hand and it'll be crispy fried and we'll get you to the doctor and your hand will heal and you'll remember to not touch that thing on the wall. And Joshua's making the same kind of argument. It's maybe even not prophetic. Like this is just the nature of the spiritual universe, right? Electricity flows and when you hit it in the wrong spot and become a conductor, it hurts. When you don't live according to God's law, it hurts. And it creates painful societies. It creates great evils in the world when groups of people stray away from the word of God. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as his sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Hebrews 12, 7. It's not an idle threat. God will stay constant to his own nature, regardless of your behavior. And he will respond to you in constantness to his perfect nature. So God's faithful to give warning. It wouldn't be just or good of God to not give us warning of that, would it? Like if we didn't know that we were going to go to hell if we did the wrong things, that would be very unfair of God to surprise us with that information. So he doesn't. Right there in God's word, it says, if you transgress, you will perish. And in specifically in this context, he's telling the Israelites they will perish from the land. They will no longer keep Israel. And they don't. They get pulled out of Israel. And they've returned to Israel and gotten kicked out multiple times. 
If thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. To perish is to wander away or be lost, to stray. It's a synonym with destroy. Uh, it says they'll be destroyed. It says the anger of the Lord. Uh, this is, I think, the second or third time we've seen that phrase. God does get angry. Anger is not a sin when it's done in perfect righteousness. He is angry about the stuff in the world that gets us angry in the spirit too. When we see injustice in the world and that bothers us, that's God's spirit on us saying that is something that you should be upset about. It is not okay for people to perish. It is not okay for people to be abused and oppressed and hurt. It is not okay for that action and that activity to happen anywhere in the world. And if you have ways to change it, change it by leading people to the word of God and leading people to what God says they should do with their life. It's the only solution. So God doesn't tolerate sin because he is holy. He only delays that punishment because he is merciful and graceful. And he wants everyone to come into the kingdom so that no one should perish. So God gives warnings because we need them. It's not an accident. And I need them. It's one of those things. So here's the exhortation. Stick to God's word. Don't talk about the objects of other people's worship. Don't snuggle up with dead things. Don't marry them, you know. God hasn't failed to bless his people. And then number five, God will not fail to punish either. And this is the gospel message in a nutshell in one chapter. Therefore, it shall come to pass when you have. There's no conditional statements there. Joshua's saying it will happen. When it does happen, you can look back and these words will hopefully bring you back to the faith because you were warned. And you go, oh yeah, I was warned about that. Dad told me it was hot. I shouldn't have touched it. And hopefully then that corrects the behavior even with pain and hurt. The lesson here is that judgment can be avoided. And there's a record of that so that people can avoid it, right? What kind of God would punish people? That's why God's waiting. He doesn't want to punish people. He wants people to come into his kingdom. So there's a curse here that is that if you don't do what God has defined as good, then you will be punished as a bad person. And that's a curse. This is the curse of the law that's talked about in the New Testament. It doesn't mean that the law is bad. It means that the law is truthful and that there is something to humanity. If we have all fallen short of the glory of God, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then the law for us is a curse. If we were perfect human beings, the law for us would be a blessing, but it's not. So that's exactly what we see um, you know, in Hebrews 8, 7. For as many are the works of the law that are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you don't do even one thing, you're cursed. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has then redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is the good news, right? Joshua lays out the curse. Jesus lays out the hope, right? What a miserable thing to be a Jewish person and study this chapter and not, not believe that there's a hope at the other end of this. Because you could try your whole life to do the works of the law, and there are a lot of good Jewish people trying to do that. And I kind of feel sorry for them. What a miserable thing to come to the realization that as you search your heart and soul, you realize, I'm just a sinner. All I want to do is play fantasy football, mm -hmm. right? In my head, and, and you can pick 
big worse th sins that draw people away. There are plenty of them, right? But they're equally distracted from God. They equally stray from God's plan for you. And they equally curse you under the law. And that's a danger. So how do you deal with that? <laughs> this is the point. You trust in Jesus that he will forgive you because he took your punishment for you. That's it. You get to the end of days, you don't go to the judgment seat explaining how good you are. Oh my goodness. That's like a five-year-old making excuses for why the house burnt down. No, there's no excuse for your house burning down. The only thing you have to say is, I trust in Jesus and I trust that he's forgiven my sins. And I know the house is burnt down and I screwed it up and it was my fault. So the best you can hope for from a kid is that they admit their fault and then they don't sin anymore. Like Jesus said to the woman who was accused by all the Pharisees, all these people trying to live under the law, right? And the thing he says where he draws in the sand, and I'll talk about what he drew later, but he draws in the sand, they all go one way, it's just her and this woman, and Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. Stop it. Don't just read it, do it. And that's the message. So we end this today with Joshua, and yeah, we're right about on time. I was going to try to get to the second speech too, um, and we'll get to that next week. Uh, but Joshua is going to give another speech to all of Israel. This was just to the leaders of Israel, just the people that are in leadership that can handle this tougher message, right? Get your life together is the message. But next week we're going to get into what he says to the whole nation. It's cool prophecy stuff. And then we're done with the book of Joshua next week. But in Joshua 25, <laughs> Joshua is going to speak through the covenant of old, old and confirm it. And he's going to have them repeat back to him the covenant that is the same covenant they made with Moses and the same covenant that Abraham made. So he's going to renew the covenant one more time before he parts ways. And this is kind of what Jesus did for us. He kind of told us the hard truth of there, there is sin and there is punishment and there is grace and there is forgiveness. Pick. And that's what Joshua kind of says. As for me and my house, we follow the Lord. That's all you can do at the end of the day is choose for you and your house who you're going to serve and how you're going to serve them. And that's such a tough decision, huge life decision. And we should be praying for each other as we go through that. Every single day we choose how to live that out. Amen? Dear Lord, we just love you and we love your word. And Lord, we um, help our hearts to understand even the chapters that may be convicting, uh, the messages that are uh, not as easy to swallow. But Lord, we don't want easy, we want holy. Uh, and we're not here, Lord, because we want to be passive in our faith. We're here because we want you to make a difference in our life and to change us. So, Lord, we love your word. We know that it is perfect. Uh, we know that you have inspired it, and we know what it does in our hearts when we listen to it. So, Lord, help us to uh, process and understand this chapter and leave here tonight knowing this chapter better than we did when we walked in. But, Lord, even more important, even more than studying the word, help us to live our lives this week as you would have us live them, following your Holy Spirit with each moment, each conversation. Help us to tend to our words and what we make mention of. Help us to uh, tend to our relationships. And Lord, help us to be overflowing with love for you so that we can share that with the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.